Hello, welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Questioning Jesus. This series provides honest answers to some of the most important questions people ask regarding the truth of Jesus and Christianity. Revelation chapter 21. We're going to look at the first five verses. We're really going to kind of work our way through Revelation 21 and 22. And we're kind of doing an extra add-on, an epilogue, if you will, to the Questioning Jesus series. And I'll explain why in just a moment. Um, But we're going to kind of add on one extra teaching to that series. So we'll be looking at Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. They're in the little booklet that uh, Steph has made for you, or you can follow along on the screen. I'm going to be using the New International Version today. Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Hear the words of your Creator, Redeemer, and King. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Uh, This year, I'm spending a lot of time with C.S. Lewis which is a little difficult since he's been dead for 56 years or so. Uh, But what I'm doing is I'm just reading a bunch of his books again this year and actually working my way through a number of biographies. I've already read a couple of biographies of him, uh, one on a biography of the book Mere Christianity. I'm working my way through a biography of the Inklings, that group he was part of with J.R.R. Tolkien. And and I'm reading a lot of Lewis's works uh, to try and go through it because... I enjoy C.S. Lewis, but he's also one of the greatest apologists, those who defended the Christian faith of the whole 20th century. He kind of rose to notoriety and fame during, uh, right before World War II with the screw tape letters, and then during World War II when he gave a series of broadcast talks that became what we know as mere Christianity. But if you look at C.S. Lewis's life, there were really two parts to C.S. Lewis. Many people know him as a great writer of fiction, things like Screwtape Letters, The Chronicles of Narnia, there was a space trilogy, a book called Till We Have Faces. And what they don't realize is actually his first degree at Oxford and his first teaching position after college was in philosophy. He actually studied philosophy first. And there were two parts to C.S. Lewis. There was a rational side, and then there was a very imaginative side. And in part, this had come about because as a child, he had loved a lot of myths and fables and stories. But then, as he was a teenager, he uh, was placed under uh, a man named Kirkpatrick, who was his tutor. He called him the Great Knock. And he said Kirkpatrick was the most purely rational 
creature ever. Kirkpatrick, the very first time he met C.S. Lewis, when Lewis just made an offhand comment about how he was surprised about the terrain, Kirkpatrick immediately chided him and said, and what, what basis do you have in having any thought about this terrain? You've never been here before, and showed him, you're going to have to defend everything you say to me. Well, Lewis loved that, and he came out of that a great rational thinker, but it created kind of a dichotomy in Lewis. And Lewis said this about himself at this stage in his life. The two hemispheres of my mind were in the sharpest contrast. On the one side, a many-islanded sea of poetry and myth. On the other, a glib and shallow rationalism. Nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real I thought grim and meaningless. And so Lewis, as he went off and fought in World War I, had this problem going. The things he believed were real and true, that were rational, that he could try to prove, left him dry, that there was no joy in them. But then there was this whole other side of things that he loved and he found great joy and they made him long and have a zest for life, but the problem was he didn't think they were actually true. And so how was he going to, to work through this? Well, as you move through Lewis's life, he eventually was at Oxford, and he was teaching there, and he'd become friends with J.R.R. Tolkien, another guy named Hugo Dyson. And one evening they were having a, a period of time where they were drinking together and walking and talking and arguing and discussing the things that they love, which were largely literature. And Lewis recounted this evening to a friend uh, of their walk on what was known as Addison's Walk at Oxford, and he said this. Now what Dyson and Tolkien showed me was this, that if I met the idea of a sacrifice in a pagan story, I didn't mind it at all. That if I met the idea of a god sacrificing himself to himself, I liked it very much and was mysteriously moved by it. And again, that the idea of the dying and reviving or living again God, like Balder, Adonis, Bacchus, similarly moved me, provided I met it anywhere except in the Gospels. The reason was that in pagan stories, I was prepared to feel the myth as profound and suggestive of meanings beyond my grasp, even though I could not say in cold prose what it meant. Now the story of Christ is simply a true myth. A myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference. It really happened. And so what Lewis's friends told him is, you're in this struggle that what you believe is true, you don't love, but what you love, you don't believe is true. And that's a false dichotomy. You don't have to choose between rationalism and the things that are most deep and meaningful in your life and that, in essence, make you long for another world. And so this shortly thereafter led to the conversion of C.S. Lewis to Christianity. He was an avowed atheist at this point. He'd been wrestling with it for years. And it led to uh, his conversion. Now, the reason I bring this up is today we're going to do a little bit of an epilogue to questioning Jesus. In this series, we've given more or less rational answers and historical answers to a whole series of questions. 
about the resurrection. Why do we believe in the resurrection? About the scripture. Why do we believe it's the word of God? If God is good and all-powerful, why is there evil and suffering in the world? What is God's teaching and his words regarding human sexuality? The question of hypocrisy. Last week, Tony gave an excellent teaching on the claims of Jesus. And all of this is really important because you can't be a Christian if you don't believe it's true. If you think Christianity is just a myth and a fable, then you're not a Christian. But if you understand that it's actually the true myth, as Lewis was saying there, the thing that you love about all the other things, but the amazing thing is it's actually true. Then you can be a believer. But being a believer is not just about rationalism. Today we want to flip and we want to look at the other side, how the gospel addresses not only the rational truth, but our deepest imaginative longings as human beings. There's a voice inside every human being. There is a longing inside every human being that says the way things are is not the way they ought to be. That says I was made for something better. I was made for a different world. And the gospel doesn't say put that down. The gospel says yes you were. And let me tell you how to find that different world. So that's what we want to talk about. Now, I could have picked many places in the Scripture because actually the Scripture addresses this throughout all of the prophets and the poetry in the Old Testament, the longings that we have that are there. But it comes, of course, to fruition finally in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 21 and 22, John is given this grand vision of another world. The world that is coming. And I want you to just kind of sit back and soak in what John tells us. First, he tells us there in Revelation 21, verse 1, uh, that there is a new heaven and a new earth. Now, this is actually going back to Isaiah 65. You can read about the new heaven and earth there. But John says, "I've, I've given a vision and I saw it. There was a new heaven and a new earth. Everything is finally being made new. And if you've read the book of Revelation with cycles over and over and over again where from different angles you see this events happening as everything is unraveling, everything is a problem, and then finally Jesus comes in and everything is made new. And he's telling us this because there's this longing. Things ought to be different than they are. And John says there is a new world that is coming. It is a new heaven and a new earth. And I won't dwell on this, but I'd encourage you to see, if you notice, it's not just a new heaven, it's a new earth. Because you and I were not made to float on clouds and all that. We were made a particular type of being, and we're going to be that in eternity. Your body is going to be raised, and there's going to be feasting and all of this, and it includes a new earth. A whole different topic, but just throw it in there for extra. Secondly, notice what he tells us about this new earth in verse 2. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. He's going to use a lot of metaphor in this description here, but he's doing this because, of course, if you've ever been to weddings, everybody always talks about, have you ever noticed, nobody ever says how handsome the groom looks really, right? We're just kind of a sidelight, right? We're, We're there because it's really about the bride and how gorgeous she is and she comes down and everybody's looking at her and John says this is what it's like at the end I'm telling you I saw the people of God which are which the metaphor here is the new Jerusalem and it is so beautiful and the only thing I can tell you is it's like when you look at a bride and she's coming down and she's radiant and she's beautiful and everything's made I'm telling you that's what it's like that's what it's going to be when we glance at the new Jerusalem the bride of God 
Thirdly, he tells us in this amazing descriptive phrase that is tying together the whole scripture. He said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. I could take the next hour and show you that phrase over and over and over again in scripture. This is the promise in essence that was given to Abraham and is expanded throughout the scripture that God will dwell with us. When we were put out of the garden because of our rebellion and sin and there was no way back in, we did not dwell with God as we were meant to dwell with God. But God has not forgotten that. That has never been altered and changed. He says, now God is going to dwell with us and we will be his people and he will be our God. In one phrase, John is saying, everything that the Old Testament scriptures were telling you about are going to come true. Every prophecy that was laid out is going to be fulfilled. Furthermore, in verse 4, he tells us what this means is every bad thing is removed forever. Notice, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The only thing that's dead in the new creation is the old order. That's gone. That's passed away. That is no more. And what that means is whatever has caused suffering is removed. Whatever's caused crying is removed. Whatever has caused pain is removed for for those of us who are a little bit older we understand what this is right the, the older we get god already has a preparation plan to remind us of why we need a new heaven and a new earth and you get it every morning when you try and get out of bed amen i mean no matter how much you try and work no matter what you do you realize your body is winding down but john says that's going to pass away no more aches no more pains, no more broken relationships, no more separation, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death. All of that is gone. And then finally, I love this phrase. Jesus comes in verse 5 and appears to John. He says, he who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. All that you've looked at that's wrong, I'm fixing it. Everything that's come unraveled, I'm undoing it and putting it back the way that it was supposed to be. Everything is going to be as it was meant to be. Now John, right here, his vision gives us a stunning, desirable picture of the future home of God's people. And the point I want you to notice is not trying to describe every detail. If you try and sit down and say, well, what do streets of gold work like? And exactly how big is it? You're missing the point. The point is not trying to answer every question you and I've got, but it's to stir up anticipation in our heart. To say, you mean the things that make me sick are no longer going to be there? I want that. You mean the things that make me just weep and cry, the pain and the broken relationships and things being a mess, that's not going to be there? I want some of that. And that's the vision that John is trying to give to you and I. But it's not just that vision. He goes on and he gives a grand vision for the people of God. There is a glorious future that awaits the church. In uh, verses 9 to 11, he puts it this way. He's told, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Who is the bride, the wife of the lamb? It's 
the church. It's the people of God. That's who it is. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. So we know that the Jerusalem that's coming down, it's not about a literal city. It's the people of God. It is the bride of God. It is God's uh, people and bride. And it says that she's coming out of heaven from God and it shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel. So what he's telling us is that you and I in the future are going to radiate with the very glory of God. Your being and my being and our being as the church is going to tremble, is going to radiate, is going to express God's very glory. And not in a way, see the problem right now is every once in a while, if you look really, really hard, you might see a bit of God's glory come through me. The problem is what also comes through, right? All kinds of mess. But see, on that day, there won't be any of the mixture. There won't be any of the mess. When I look at you and you look at me, we're going to see God's glory radiating out of one another. And when we look around and we see the church, we're not going to see the broken mess we see right now. We're going to see everything we were meant to be. We are going to see fellow creatures who radiate as much of God's glory as is possible for a creature to do. No sin, no brokenness, no diminishing of it. It's going to radiate back and forth with one another. Every imperfection, every impurity removed, the church radiant with the very glory of God. That's a bride coming down the aisle. And that is our destiny this is not a false myth it's not a little fairy tale the reason we like hearing this is because it's true that's why there's something in us that says yes that's the way it's supposed to be and we don't have to choose between the true and what we love and what we long for because they are both true notice Furthermore, he tells us if you read down through Revelation 21 that the church will not only be glorious, but it will be glorious in the fact that it is drawn from every multitude and every people group. It's a vast multitude from every people group. In verses 24 to 26, he says, Then the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there, and the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Notice here we read nations, kings of the earth, nations. John's point is this bride is not just from Israel. It's not just from a couple. It's from every nation. And they are brought together, all peoples. And furthermore, notice he uses the word splendor and also glory and honor. What an amazing thing. The best of all of humanity's accomplishments, everything that has been done that has pointed to the glory of God is going to be brought there, made alive, made greater, magnified out, and we're going to see it in one another. 
That's what your future is and mine. And it is every people group because every group is different, but every one of them shows some other aspect of who God is because there's no way any one of us individually could do that. We can't even do that as a culture. But when we look at the church, it's going to be every tribe, every language that has ever existed, every people group is there. And each of them, the best of what they have done has come to life and is magnified and is radiating God's glory everywhere. That is our future. And in fact, you can see a visual representation of this fact in Revelation 7. Earlier, he had had a vision of what heaven is like. And he tells us in Revelation 7, 9, and 10, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the lamb and they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb and what this tells us is the gospel will accomplish its work the gospel will march on. Please, here, I'm going to take a sidestep for just a second here. There is too much fretting among Christians in America today. Let me tell you what the future of the gospel is. The future of the gospel is continued spreading, continued growth, more and more people brought in. Not because I want to give you a positive vibe this morning, but because God has declared it so. And it does not matter which direction Western civilization goes, what technological thing they come up with tomorrow, what law Congress might pass, who's elected president, what happens. None of that makes any difference. The gospel of God will march on. Western civilization may fade and be a memory and an, an interesting archaeological dig, but I will tell you what will survive. The gospel of the living God. Rome fell, but the gospel did not. The Holy Roman Empire fell, the gospel did not. The Third Reich raised up to crush the gospel and declared it would last a thousand years. Twelve years later, a little short of a thousand, it was gone. But the gospel survived. And John's telling us it will continue to expand. It will draw people in and they will be purified and the glory of God will be magnified through that multitude. A cleansed, united, worshiping multitude from every people group. That is the church's future. That's where the church is going. And this then John brings up in Revelation 22 and he tells us this is all a glorious consummation this is the end this is where everything has been heading in revelation 22 1 to 3 john writes these words then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of god and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Do you, do you get the picture? There is the water of life that comes right out of God's very throne. And it's free. 
and available to us. There is the tree of life that the last time we saw was when we were barred from getting back there. It's there. It's somehow on both sides of the river, and it's free. It's bearing fruit every single month. Anybody can have anything they want. And even the leaves would bring complete healing. Everything is there and made available. And notice in verse 3, he summarizes, because all of this is going back to Genesis 1 to 3. And all of that had been shut off because of the curse, but John tells us the curse is removed. The curse is no more. As far as the curse was, it's been removed. It's been taken away. And I want you to understand, this is not saying the consummation is here and we're back in the garden. Oh no, friends. Where we are is far better than the garden. We are carried beyond the garden. We are carried to where the garden was always only a pointer. The end is far better than the beginning. Notice in verses 3 and 5, or 3 through 5 of Revelation 22, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, this is not a garden. This is a massive city with that garden in the middle. This is not just where occasionally God shows up in the cool of the day to walk. God is in the house, always. And we can see the face of God. And friends, when you and I see the face of God, you won't want to channel surf. Everything in you is going to say, that is what I have been longing for my entire life. Everything else I loved was only a pointer to this. This is the reality. Everything else just a shadow this is the real deal and it will never end and it will never diminish and i will never tire of it i will only grow more hungry for it day after day after year after year beholding the face of our glorious god the consummation is better than the garden for we'll see the face of God and we will be fully unalterably his forever there's not going to be a revelation 23 and say and then the serpent snuck in and we go back to Genesis 3 we are his forever that is the future that awaits us now how do you respond to this John at the end of this vision I want you to respond because this is what the point is He tells us in verses 17 to 20 of Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. And down in verse 20 says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen, Come, Lord Jesus. And by the way, that's, that's the next to last verse of the Bible. The only thing left is the final benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. This is it. This is what the whole scripture has been looking for. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. That's what awaits us. That is what I am looking for. The response of a heart stirred by this vision is not, 
yeah, I love that, but it's not true. I've got rationalism. No, the, the heart that is stirred by this vision says, I love that because it is true. I love that because that is that for which I was made. I love that because I know that is my destiny. God's spirit within us, I love that it says, the spirit and the bride say come. You and I, the reason we cry out, Abba, Father, is because the Holy Spirit dwells within us doing that. And the reason you and I, when we hear this vision, long and say, yes, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come, like we say this morning, is because the Holy Spirit is in you crying out for that. He is calling through us to God to accomplish this. And so this is it. This is what all the Scripture has looked forward to. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And so I hope today, after we've spent time, and it's important answering those questions, thinking about how to talk to our friends, but it's important for us to sit back and let the vision of God's kingdom stir our heart so that we say, come, Lord Jesus. And I hope it reminds you this week, if you're like me, and I sit there and sometimes i got a spare moment and I swipe over and read the news, it's never as good as that ever at best it's inane and usually it's heartbreaking i long for when we swipe and we say the forecast is tomorrow's better than today and today's already perfection tomorrow seeing the face of god no more sorrow no more tears everything as it should be so how do we apply this what does this mean for us I have two brief questions and we will come to the Lord's table. The first question, do we see that we were made for another world? We were made for another world. See, this had been the struggle that C.S. Lewis went for. He was longing for another world. He wanted that other world, but, but the rational side of him said, well, I love that. I long for that. There's all these pointers within me to that, but it can't be true. Until he walked out with his friends and he had that breakthrough that taught him that no, you long for it precisely because it is true. And so Lewis, the believer in mere Christianity in his radio talk said this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. See, Lewis the atheist looked at it and said, yes, I'm longing for that. Everything in me points to that, but it can't be true. Until his friends told him, well, of course it's true. That's why you're longing for it. The reason that longing is there is because you were made for that. And all the other myths that you love are all just little pointers towards it. That's all they are. They got mixture in there. People have made them up. They're fables. But they're pointers towards that thing. And here's the good news. It's all true in Jesus Christ. Everything you have longed for. And so he's finally seeing that Everything he longed for in this world is just a pointer to the fact that you were made for another world. And so the longings of his imagination were not an illusion that was opposed to the truth, but in fact were just signposts to the ultimate reality, 
for which he had been made. So do we realize that? We were made for another world. You were not made. I was not made for this sin-stained, sorrow-soaked world of pain, rebellion, falsehood, and dashed hopes. That's not what you were made for. You and I were made for another world, a perfect one, without sin, without imperfection, without death. And most importantly, you were made to open your eyes and see the face of God Almighty. That's what you were created for. And every other longing you've got, we distort them, we twist them, we make other gods, we run after and find all these other things, and at best, they're just a pointer to God. And at worst, we try and make them a substitute. In other words, what Lewis was discovering was the same thing which he had read in Augustine before, where Augustine, a long time before that, had prayed at the beginning of the Confessions, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Because since we were made for God, and we were made for another world, there is no rest here until we find rest in God, and until he accomplishes that. So that's the first question. Do you see? Do I see? We're made for another world. Second question that follows on from that immediately is do we see the lure of the enemy to make us settle for this world instead of the world for which we were made? In uh, Lewis's fiction, what I, what I love as you read C.S. Lewis is every, he would write these philosophical essays and then he would always turn them into a series of fictional books. So he had the abolition of man, which described the dangers he saw, all of which have come true in spades, in where civilization was heading. And they were fictionalized in what he referred to as the Space Trilogy. Well, one of the things he did in this is, in his Chronicles of Narnia, in the book called The Silver Chair, these children are down with this creature called a marsh wiggle. Not important to remember that, but they're down, and there's this queen of Underland. And she is strumming this music and got this smoke in the air that is trying to befuddle their minds. And she is talking to them and she's telling them there is no other world. You're you're talking about that there's this place above the ground. Nobody lives above the ground. Everything's below the ground. You're saying there's this thing that's the sun, but that's just you're looking at a light and you're projecting it out and you're doing that. And that is Lewis's description of exactly what the enemy tries to do to every one of us. When that longing arises within us, he strums away and he says, that's not really true. That's not really what you were made for. Yeah, I know you want that. You human beings have evolved and you've created it for this reason. And that's what he whispers in our ear. Friends, it's a lie. And so he tells us that we should live only for this life, right? This life's not a dress rehearsal. You only live once. You do All of those things are just various ways of saying, you better go for it now because there is nothing beyond the grave. Friends, that's the ultimate lie. And in fact, the, the bad part of it is, tragically, if we buy that argument, you not only miss 
both the here and now, you also miss what's after. You get nothing for that bargain. Because that's why, if you look around right now, you want to know why we are so divided as a culture right now? Because everybody believes it's a zero-sum game, and i got to get everything I can right now, and if I don't win now, everything is lost. That's not true. It's not true. What happens here, I'm not saying that it's not important. It is not of ultimate importance. It is not. And we need not live that way. But that's a sure sign the enemy has played and strummed and enchanted us to believe that that is the only way that we can live. And so if we buy into that, what we find is actually death and destruction. C.S. Lewis, in another quote, said, All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, all of it, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. I mean, that's, that's human history. And why do we do those things? Because I've got this longing within, and it's crying out, but it can't be God. I don't, I don't believe that that thing is there, and so I have to fight, so we go to war. Or I think I'm going to find it in sex. I think I'm going to find it in drugs. I think I'm going to find it if I can just get enough stuff. And he who dies with the most toys still dies is what it is see but that that's human history that's how it's all written and so what we need to do is don't listen to the enemy hear and respond to the deep longing for joy that is within you don't drown that out don't believe the lie of the enemy everything if you understand this when you enjoy a meal this afternoon it should be a signpost to the final meal we're going to eat when you enjoy spending time with family it should be a signpost to that day when we will be in fellowship forever with all the people that we have known and loved and the people that we have not yet known but we've wanted to be able to sit down with when we gather in worship it's a signpost to the day we're going to see the face of god And it's going to be Jesus leading us on that day. And so what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table. And we're going to do this feast of another world. Now, very often when we come to the Lord's table, we often use it to point back, to remember what Jesus did. And that's important. His atoning work for us is important. But this meal is also meant to point forward because as you notice, each time when we do the words of institution, what do we say? We do this until he comes. Because this meal is a pointer to the marriage supper of the Lamb that awaits us in the future. It's a type and a shadow. And so we're looking forward to that feast that is beyond compare, that feast for which we were made, and this is meant to stir up that hunger. And so the invitation this morning is everyone who hungers for the tree of life, I urge you, come and eat. If you thirst for the river of life that flows from the throne of God, I urge you to come and drink, for God has opened the way for us. So I'm going to begin this morning by quoting Isaiah 55, 1 to 3, as we come to the table. Come, all you who are thirsty, 
Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear to me and come. Hear that your soul may live. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you're a member of this church or not, I invite you this morning to come to this table. If you're not a believer, then the meal's not for you because you're saying you don't believe there is that other world. You don't believe that there is a tree and a river of life. But if you do believe that, I urge you this morning, come, eat, and drink that your soul may live. For what I receive from the Lord Jesus, I pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we ask that this morning you would meet us. Lord, I pray that you would stir up within us the hunger for the feast that is to come when we will sit at table and eat and drink with our God. We ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you get the elements, please hold on in together. Again, we have a gluten-free option. If you need gluten-free bread, if you just raise your hand, it will be brought to you. Other than that, when you get the elements, please hold on to them, and we will take them together in two or three minutes. With joy we praise you, gracious God, for you have created heaven and earth, made us in your image, and kept covenant with us, even when we fell into sin. We give you thanks for Jesus Christ our Lord, whose coming opened to us the way of salvation, and whose triumphant return we eagerly await. Therefore, in taking this bread, we join our voices with all the saints and angels in the whole creation, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Amen. Take and eat. You are holy, O God of majesty, and blessed is Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. You sent him into this world to satisfy the longings of your people for a Savior, to bring freedom to the captives of sin, and to establish justice for the oppressed. He came among us as one of us, taking the lot of the poor, sharing in human suffering, and we rejoice that in his death and rising again, you set before us the sure promise 
of new life, the certain hope of an eternal home, where we will sit at table with Jesus Christ, our host, finding fulfillment for our deepest longings forevermore. Take and drink. Strengthen us, O God, in the power of your Spirit to bring good news to the poor, to lift blind eyes to sight, to loose the chains that bind, and to claim and spread your blessing for all people. We pray that you would keep us faithful in your service until Christ comes in final victory, and we shall feast with all your saints in the joy of our eternal home, your kingdom. Through Christ, with Christ, in Christ, and in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor are yours, Almighty God, now and forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Let's stand together, and we're going to conclude with a word of benediction that I'm taking out of the book of Jude and paraphrasing it just a little bit. But I encourage you to receive the blessing of God and then go forth in that blessing to spread the news that there's a new world coming. May our great God keep you from falling and present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy so that your deepest desires and longings are fulfilled as you gaze at Him and feast in His eternal kingdom. Amen. Go in the peace of our Lord. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church. If you would like to support this ministry, please go to www.brcc.church and click the Give tab.